0: And welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. A week is a long time in politics, as they say, and even during lockdown, New South Wales showed just how true that old chestnut is. In the space of a few days, New South Wales went from having Gladys Berejiklian riding high in the polls and on her way to leading her state out of lockdown to the swearing-in of a new Premier and Deputy Premier. Add to that multiple by-elections and general confusion. We all know why it happened, but in this edition, we need to ask, did the media play its part in informing the public and holding the powerful to account, and why the level of grief at the fall of yet another New South Wales Premier, this time to a corruption inquiry? To help us this week, we're joined by Lucy Cormack, who reports New South Wales politics for the Sydney Morning Herald, and Troy Bramston, who's a senior writer and columnist for the Australian newspaper. Lucy Cormack and Troy Bramston, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you both very much for being here. Now, a lot of people, and not just in New South Wales, were shocked, blindsided. They were even angry that Gladys Berejiklian resigned from politics altogether after ICAC's announcement that it would investigate her after evidence given to an inquiry last year. I imagine both of you were surprised, but perhaps not shocked that she resigned, let's just go over why in the end do you think, not just in terms of the inquiry being announced, but why in the end did she go and did she have any real alternative? Lucy, we might start with you on this one.
1: Yes, yeah, so look, I think one thing that's become clear, of course, is that this was a huge shock for the public. Um, but perhaps, um, you know, if you had been sort of paying attention or, or in sort of following the course of, of, of the ICAC investigation and in political circles, it perhaps wasn't as much of a surprise. Uh, we knew that investigations were continuing. We knew that the ICAC had um, had delayed its findings on on the Dara Maguire as we had expected to receive those um, earlier and they delayed those and pushed those out. So there was sort of this kind of sense of of, of foreboding as well something still was to come. and um, And I think that the fact that she's ultimately stood down, I mean, I'm of the view that I don't really see any other way around it. It's the standard that she'd set for every other Premier. I mean, some would argue she should have stood down perhaps sooner. But indeed, I think given the very serious allegations that have been levelled against her, whether or not she has led us through a pandemic well and, and, and led the state, you know, in a in a way that's seen us sort of succeed through the pandemic, um, that's sort of irrelevant, I think, when it comes to the fact that these are serious allegations being levelled against her by the corruption watchdog, and and she has to, to respond to that.
0: So, I mean, in a sense, do you think because there wasn't an awful lot of reporting at the height of, you know, Delta, for example, in particular when Delta when Delta kind of hit New South Wales in a big way, that there wasn't a lot of reporting of what was going on in the background with ICAC? Obviously, you as political reporters and Troy, you as a, as a commentator, you would have been aware of what was going on, but what uh, and that, that obviously has come as a surprise to the public, but. Do you think that's contributed to to the level
2: of of shock that we've seen, Troy? Yeah, Monica, I think it definitely has. There's no doubt, you know, facing a a one in a hundred year pandemic has focused uh, the public's attention and uh, it's probably drained some media resources away from keeping a spotlight on what was going on at ICAC. Um, But I actually think that what happened at ICAC last year, last October, Um, when the Daryl Maguire relationship with Gladys Berejiklian was revealed, I thought they were sufficient grounds for her resignation and we might be able to talk about um, some of the aspects of the ICAC Act and what actually took place then, which led me to take that view. So I was not surprised at all um, with her resignation. I was only surprised that it took so long. Um, And, of course, that inquiry, which is called Operation Keppel, has now been extended Um, into new areas so the inquiry is ongoing Um, but Monica I'd probably want to suggest something in addition to the pandemic and that is I think that Gladys Berejiklian was very clever at um, spinning what what had actually taken place last October Um, and I say that because I think she was very clever in propagating this idea that she had a bad boyfriend she was unlucky in love and that won her a lot of sympathy with radio shock jocks and some newspaper gossip columnists, and, and so public. she she so she took control of the narrative very quickly. So it wasn't about potential corruption or probity lapses; it was about her failed love life, and she leaned into that very shrewdly, very calculatingly. And I think that uh, that won her some support with with the public who turned a blind eye to these probity failures. Well, I
0: mean, and, and,
1: oh, sorry, yes, go on, Lucy. Oh, I was just going to add to that, Monica, that I think f- further to what Troy has said there is that, um, you know, perhaps this time round, I think, you know, part two of of this saga is the shock value of, of that sort of the relationship, if you will, and, and the love story that was that she, you know, put up as being behind this. I think the shock value of that will have subsided and that the focus will be very much now on what that relationship meant. Did, did it achieve Did it achieve, um, you know, or or, or lead to wrongdoing and how did it play out, I suppose, in terms of how she may or may not have have used her position of office or or whether she breached public trust, you know, as a result of that relationship?
0: So do do both of you think then that when these hearings take place, I think around October 18, likely to be uh, highly viewed by uh, a lot of people, including, um, you know, ordinary members of the public, do you think that that, you know, kind of St Gladys... Uh, aura might uh, subside then which is not to preempt what the hearings might unveil of course but uh, but just the sight of seeing Gladys Berejiklian uh, being interrogated in the witness stand um, with allegations like these being put to her um, in presumably more detail than they were last year do you think that that will impact her public image?
2: Yeah, look, I, I do 100%, Monica. I think that when voters look at her sitting in the witness box and being asked uh, these additional questions, and, and keep in mind that ICAC usually asks questions they already know the answer to, um, mm-hmm. that, is, that is the model. And um, they've been doing this investigation for a long time. I mean, I was hearing from Liberal MPs as early as January this year that there had been um, so-called secret sessions going on. People had been interviewed. Um, and that this was very much a live and ongoing matter. And I think people will now start to probably focus a little bit better on what has actually taken place at ICAC and look at the questions being asked, the evidence produced and her responses. But I must just uh, flag something else, Monica, which is I've been disappointed with the quality of some of the commentary um, that has been in the media. I think the the Sydney Morning Herald and the Australian and the Financial Review have done a good job, in terms of their actual political reporters that have been following this this matter, and I don't have any criticism of them, but it's the other commentators writing in newspapers and on television and radio who have come in and, and criticised ICAC, uh, said that they're surprised by, these, by the resignation, it was a witch hunt, it was a star chamber, um, how can they do this? I mean, I saw the Channel 9 bulletin on Friday night, Monica, and that opened with, a statement that the nation was grieving. Um, now that is absurd. That is absurd. It's absurd reporting and re- absurd commentary by people who really don't know what has gone on or how ICAC operates. And I'm a little bit hot under the collar because it, it's frankly driving me absolutely bonkers. Um, some of the commentary I've seen in in the recent week. And yeah, Troy,
1: know, I'm sure, I'm sure, Troy, you would have been you would have been outraged to see some of the other comparisons which I saw on, on Twitter saying you know it was akin to the death of Diana and yeah. others that said it was it was somewhat like you know the it, it reminded them of, of the gunning down of JFK. <laughs> I know
2: and, and again Gladys incredible. Berejiklian and again uh, Gladys Berejiklian has lent into that and fostered that so you know we've seen her on TV you know collecting the flowers accepting the well wishes um, the cards that have been left outside her home and her office I mean the the nation's gone crazy here and Um, I'm really concerned about the quality of political commentary in this country, uh, that we can allow this to fester and become what many people believe is the truth when it actually is not the truth, and she is already facing significant uh, allegations. I I think some of these things are actually facts about how she has breached the ICAC Act, and so uh, this is actually damaging for our democracy um, that we're giving her essentially a free pass, and there's somehow sympathy for someone who could be facing serious, serious implications and possible charges for corrupt conduct.
0: So, okay, okay. I mean, except all of that, do you have we seen anything like this before in in Australian political life, Troy?
2: Well, I, I actually can't outpouring. think I actually can't There'd think of 70, anything 70,
0: else 77,000 signatures on a change.org petition saying she should be reinstated has that ever happened before I mean not a change.org pet- petition but this kind of outpouring of grief and
2: uh and and outrage this has happened I can't recall anything like it Monica I've I've racked my brain trying to think of a historical comparison I can't think of one, but it's probably worth just briefly noting that, you know, you know, her failure to disclose this relationship with Darren Maguire is actually a breach of the Ministerial Code of Conduct, which sits under the ICAC Act as a regulation. So this is not an allegation. This is not an argument. This is a fact. She did hmm. not disclose what was a close, intimate, personal relationship as required by law. That, I think, is enough to warrant her resignation. But she also... Um, did not disclose a potential conflict of interest to the cabinet when she knew about his business deals. We've heard the phone taps. She heard him talk about the money he was going to make. She met his partners, business partners. She met his clients. She received emails uh, from his clients and partners. Um, That is a clear conflict of interest, given that he had a business interest in the Second Sydney Airport, which the cabinet was discussing and making decisions about. And, of course, the third thing is that under the ICAC Act, anyone who suspects corrupt conduct or knows of corrupt conduct conduct has a duty to report it. So there's some very clear things where I think she has failed, yet it doesn't seem to have registered with the public at all.
0: Lucy, can you see any comparisons um, to, to the treatment of politicians in times gone by? You know, Gough Whitlam comes to mind. There was an outpouring of grief then. Is this comparable?
1: Look, I don't think it it quite is. I mean, what's been quite extraordinary for me has been the fact that because she's worn this halo for so long, you know, no one had a problem with ICAC or its powers or what it was doing when it was exposing Maguire himself, you know, and some of the allegations against him or the likes of Eddie Obeid. Um, You know, everyone couldn't do enough to sing its praises. It's only now that it is that it is Gladys who is in, in their sights, I feel, that... That has, you know, the the dial has shifted, and I think it, it's interesting to consider. Perhaps I wonder if we hadn't been in a pandemic, if we hadn't been in this situation. And her popularity weren't wasn't such, you know, as a result of the the pandemic. I wonder if the public reaction would have been quite the same because she she did not have the same public recognition pre pandemic. You know, she became Gladys. You know, by by just the sing, the singular name, she could be only known as Gladys, and she had such popularity all around Australia. And everybody knew her as a result of the pandemic. Would would the support be the same without that that having happened? I don't know.
0: Well, I mean, that, that does take me to the, a point that I wanted to raise with both of you, and that is that the pandemic pandemic seems to have created these cults, the, you know, various cults of personality around our leaders. Dan Andrews, of course, comes to mind there as well. Do you think that the pandemic has altered our relationship with the premiers and the territory leaders? Um, or, or, or is that kind of support that we're seeing around them a sign of something, you know, more partisan or perhaps even a bit more base creeping into our public discourse.
2: Troy? Yeah, I think uh, we have seen a shift back to premier power, probably for the first time since the 1930s. Um, And we've become a little bit parochial as well within our our states. Hmm. Um, And I think at a time of crisis, at a time of challenge, uh, people often look to authority figures, and in this in this case, the, the premiers who seem to be on their side, uh, doing what they can, dealing with the, with a difficult matter, and so people seek reassurance, they seek leadership, um, and they're founded in the premiers. And the premiers, I think, have successfully ganged up on Scott Morrison, uh, who of course has his own failures in the pandemic, and I'm not exempting exempting those. Um, but it's sort of set up a bit of a dichotomy between sort of state state based boundaries against the kind of national uh, political system. So we have seen that. And I think the the daily press conferences um, have created this sort of individual, singularly leadership type figure um, yeah. who is responsible for everything and taking the action and being tough. So, yeah, that's that's been, um, that's uh, I think, been a factor of the pandemic. But related to that, Monica, is also, I think, um, this idea that because we're in a pandemic, we need to just pause everything else um, and there have been a number of commentators, and including some uh, some lawyers, have argued that, you know, this is a pandemic, it's a serious time, maybe we just need to put this corruption hearing aside for a little while and uh, and just think about that later. Well, mm-hmm. I think that is a ludicrous statement. We can't just sort of pause um, uh, investigations into integrity and probity. In fact, they're probably more important during a pandemic than than not. Um, but we seem to have kind of lost our collective senses with some of this stuff. and. Um, the willingness to give uh, Gladys Berejiklian a pass for what I think are serious failures um, is just mind-boggling, and the pandemic itself has probably a, a big, a big part to do with that.
0: Mm. Um, just back to this point of the the change in dynamics of power, though, which I think is a really it's an interesting phenomenon, and I wonder, Lucy, to what extent you think the media has has exacerbated that issue and and played into it. I mean, for example, ABC24 has literally been taken over by press conferences, you know, from morning till night. It's, it's, it's extraordinary that every leader, you know, gets unlimited time to, to rabbit on. There was a time when Dan Andrews would get on his feet and talk for two, three hours, and it was all covered. Has that played into it? Yes, I think so, because I think what it's done for the
1: first time is it's for the public, people who have never seen a press conference in their life are suddenly watching them every single day. And, and you know, it's part of their daily schedule. Um, And it gives them, I think, just sort of speaking to even my friends and family who who aren't in the media, they say, you know, it sort of gives them an insight, feel like they have an inside look as to how their premier is out there fighting for them. And I think that's been particularly relevant with really contentious issues like the border wars. You know, people are uh, sitting at home, unable to visit family in Queensland or in Western Australia and cut off for, for this entire pandemic. They are able to tune in and hear how their premier is fighting for them, and it's 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 their battle. And I think it comes a little bit back to that kind of parochialism. I think Troy mentioned. I, I do agree that that has really been borne out at this time. Um, but I think it, it, the 11 a.m. press conferences, if you will, you know, I think there's been nothing nothing healthy. I don't think about about us all sitting down to 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 sit and hear daily case numbers and daily de- death tolls. However, I think there was a lot of shock around the Premier when she announced, if we recall, when she sort of alluded the former Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, when she said she would be stepping away from doing that and pulling back. And it was that really showed the relevance of those daily press conferences, I think, for people because there was a public outcry. People did go, well, hang on, is this the right time to be doing this? Are we opening up? And now, you know, as of as recently as yesterday, new Premier, Dominic Perrottet, has said that the 11am is going to be scrapped the case numbers are going to be released every morning now much earlier and we're moving ahead. We're very much in that recovery phase. So, you know, I suppose he's really trying to put his mark on the the roadmap out of lockdown and to say that he's moving away from that that world in which we sit down and consume these, these you know, long-running press conferences.
0: Is that a good thing? Do you think it's a good move?
1: Well, I think we're moving into a parliament's returning uh, you know we'll, parliament will resume again next week and I think that's been one of the reasons the daily press conferences have been so important because actually all of this year and all of this pandemic uh, the lockdown at least in the last three months it's been the only vehicle or, or the only way to hold the government to account to put questions to them I mean this was the only way that that you know any of the decisions critical key decisions they were making could be could be scrutinised, um, and that. That public scrutiny, I think, was really important. As we sort of move into this next stage um, and we have vaccination rates where they are um, and Parliament is resuming, I think, yeah, I think there is something um, realistic about moving away from from do we need to stand up for an hour and, and ask the same questions each day. Um, I think that the dial has shifted, I suppose, with, with those high vaccination rates and with, you know, with life returning to some modicum of normal.
0: Okay, can I take you both back briefly now to IK for a moment, um, and the reaction that we've seen in some quarters, and and it's been across the board in in, in media terms. I mean, at The Australian, there was a big Shari Markson piece that was quite condemnatory of of the move. Uh, The Sydney Morning Herald has run its fair share of commentary pieces as well. Um, And the general tone seems to be this is a kangaroo court that we keep on losing premiers to this body, it's got to stop. Um, If you link that back to federal politics for a moment, many, have been, you know, lamenting the lack of ministerial accountability and and the general disdain for the most basic of public standards. Do you think that the the reaction that a Premier has gone in this way is also a sign that we've kind of collectively forgotten what accountability means and what it is to, to see true leadership?
2: Troy? Yeah, look, there, of course, has been this debate at the federal level about whether there should be an integrity commission, an anti-corruption commission established, and the government has said they uh, would do one, but probably not as strong as what, what Labor would, would do. Um, and given the response to Gladys Berejiklian, um, I think there's going to be some support for that, um, the, to, ha- to actually have a serious look at what kind of anti-corruption commission should be established at the federal level. I don't think there's any doubt that there should be one, but there are very, very different models across the nation. I mean, every state and territory has some kind of anti-corruption body, but they operate extremely differently. And ICAC was the first, and it does have this sort of open model where uh, hearings, are, hearings are public and, and the voters get to... The, the idea about it is that voters actually get to follow what's going on and follow the presentation of evidence and follow the line of questioning in the hope that they better understand it. But that actually hasn't happened um, in this case at all, uh, people in fact have tuned out and have been shocked by, by uh, Gladys Berejiklian's resignation, even though they actually hadn't come down with any, any finding yet. But yes, there is going to be um, a continual push, I think, from Labor at the federal level for a commission of some kind. But exactly what model it is, I don't know that we've actually settled in a position nationally uh, about what is actually best. So this is going to be something, I think, to watch in the, in the lead up to the election. So, Troy, do you think that the ICAC
0: model needs a little rethink, as of, even as it applies to New South Wales?
2: Well, look, I, I have some reservations about the ICAC model, um, but I'm not, sure, I'm, I'm not actually sure about which is the best way to go. I mean, I'd actually like to see a public debate. I'd like to see um, some alternative models put forward, particularly at the national level with some, with some detail uh, before I pass judgment on that. Um, But my concern about Gladys Berejiklian was was not so much the model, it was the fact that it had already uncovered that she had kept this relationship secret. And as I argue, that had meant that she had already fallen foul of the Ministerial Code of Conduct, which is a regulation that sits under the ICAC Act. And of course, she hadn't disclosed that relationship and a potential conflict of interest um, to the Cabinet. So um, the fact that it discovered these things... Um, without actually making any findings, I think were cause enough for her to resign, Mm -hmm. um, which has actually got nothing to do with the ICAC model, so to speak, because we haven't actually seen uh, where this investigation has gone. But the problem for ICAC is that, let's be honest, I mean, it has had some high-profile failures. It's made some allegations about people that have been overturned in the Supreme Court, most notably Nick Greiner, um, the Premier, ironically, who set up ICAC in 1988. So ICAC has had some hits and misses, uh, but in terms of Gladysbury Jicklin I think it's a slam dunk um that she has breached the act.
0: Uh, Lucy is ICAC doing the job that we need it to be doing. Well a, this the right is way? this
1: mm, this is going to be I think uh, such a hot topic going forward now especially as this inquiry kicks off on October 18 what we did hear a lot of um in the days following um Gladysbury resignation you know from those supporters of hers who were highly critical of 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 the ICAC statement um people like um Philip Ruddock and also you know even um uh, health minister Brad Hazard made similar comments earlier this week which was to say that there needs to be um, some sort of a review or overhaul or, or change to the way that ICAC is structured. And both of them sort of cited the Hong Kong model and And um, what they have in Hong Kong is, is a model in which it remains all behind closed doors until basically a point at which charges can be laid, I understand. So um, basically arguing that the sorts of things that we've seen to date and the sorts of allegations, you know, that were laid out in, in a in a statement released by ICAC last week. That shouldn't have been made public perhaps until now, which and, and that therefore challenges exactly what we're talking about here, and it, which is, you know, the, the right of the voter and the public to, to sit and to watch these inquiries as they play out. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that also, I don't know, I sort of feel a bit uncomfortable with, with that idea as well, in the sense that um, you know, yes, ICAC has its has its issues with, you know, people who do go and appear as witnesses often get tarnished with with the brush of appearing at ICAC and that can be a problem for them and I and I understand that. But by the same token, I also think ICAC hasn't just woken up and written a statement and emailed it out and said, these are the things we've decided to look at. These are allegations and points of investigation that are the product of many, many, many months of inquiry. And as, as everybody says, ICAC asks questions they already know the answers to we are going to, I imagine, see, a, you know, hear and see a litany of ed- evidence at this inquiry and we will hear phone recordings perhaps, we will see documents tendered. So they do come out with these statements and these inquiries off the back of investigation. So I don't think it's necessarily, it's not happening in a, in a vacuum and out of the blue as it were.
0: But you're saying that, that that's a damaging bit, that that's what should stop or be changed.
1: No, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. The, the, this is, I think, this is what we've seen a lot of in the discourse. I, I agree. I, I'm sort of, I don't know necessarily what, I don't know enough yet to say probably how the model should be tweaked. But I, some of the arguments, I suppose, from Gladys Jacqueline supporters in the last week have been that it shouldn't have been as public as it has been to date, and that maybe we should be looking at models overseas, similar to Hong Kong, where things stay behind closed doors for longer.
0: Okay. Now, before I let you both go, I just want to turn your minds briefly to uh, to Gladys Berejiklian's replacement, Dominic Perrottet. There's been an awful lot of focus on his religious beliefs, um, a politician's personal beliefs, of course, do uh, meet some level of uh, the public interest um, uh, discourse. But, but in the case of a figure like Perrottet, many of us know very, very little about him. Were either of you um, uncomfortable with the level of scrutiny and distrust expressed in the media and sometimes by members of the media and certainly on social media uh, into his religious beliefs? Troy?
2: Yes, uh, it's a good question, Monica. I've actually been appalled um, by some of the questioning and some of the focus on his personal beliefs. Uh, When he was interviewed on the New South Wales um, ABC news bulletin the day he became premier, the first question was about his about his religion. Mm. Now, I mean, these are personal beliefs. Um, he is a he is a conservative uh, Catholic. Um, that's his prerogative. Um, I'm not aware that um, his conservative social views have acted on his public responsibilities in terms of actual decisions being made. Um, but they, but I mean, they he could, is a, right? Sorry? But they could. Well, they, they could, but he is a part of a um, very socially progressive, moderate Liberal government, um, and it should be judged on its policies rather than the individual beliefs of uh, ministers. Um, I think he also is someone who has traditionally been very pragmatic um, and very shrewd, and I think that um, those on the left... Um, And I mean, not so much journalists, but the Labor Party should be very, very careful about going after somebody's personal views, because there's a lot of socially conservative Labor voters or swinging voters uh, who would be um, unsettled by that kind of line of questioning. Um, Let's judge him on what he actually does um, and whether or not uh, his personal beliefs impact on actual decision making. I've seen no evidence yet that it does. Um, and in fact, you know, the other argument could be put for someone who might be an, an atheist or an agnostic. I mean, um, someone might say, "Don't we need Christian values in, in public life?" But we never hear that kind of um, questioning. So let's just judge him on what he does rather than what he what he believes in his private life. Lucy,
0: um, isn't the the entire point of a liberal democracy to show some you know tolerance towards personal belief? Do you think the media got the balance right in the coverage of Perata's uh, ascendancy to the premiership? I think there was a lot of focus on
1: it, I suppose, and I, I guess it sort of, it it, it, um, it came off the back, I think. It, people really targeted the fact of, of his voting record on on the, you know, the, the abortion bill, which we saw in 2019, and, um, to you know, he voted against removing that from the criminal code, um, and that was a conscience vote that was held. Um, he's defended his decision and his faith and said, you know, he's very proud of his faith and that, um, you know, diversity should be celebrated I think he said in his first press conference and not criticized and you know he should be judged on who he is and, and what he says not simply on his on his religion um, I think what he was really trying to do um is on Tuesday at least was to point out that he would always be committed to despite his faith he would always be committed to conscience votes on social issues and that will definitely play a big role um in coming weeks and months um over voluntary assisted dying which we know is going to come before the parliament um and you know there's a lot of talk that that was sort of one of the the conditions of, of getting the moderate support in the party for for his um tilt at the leadership which was that he would give a conscience vote on on that issue so um i think um i was surprised with some of the you know we have seen a lot of coverage on on his on his faith i think I wasn't entirely surprised at the outpouring of, of, of um, you know, anger in, in many corners of Twitter and social media, I guess, because yeah. I suppose I sort That's of bit feel bit. like that was the obvious line yeah. that would be followed and picked up on.
0: Yep. Um, okay, is there a final question to you both? Um, the next New South Wales state election isn't due until, I think, March 2023, so the next election of consequence is the federal election without Gladys Berejiklian around? Do you think that Scott Morrison faces an uphill battle in New South Wales? Troy,
2: yeah, I do. I think she um, was somewhat of a defender of his against uh, the Labor premiers in Queensland and, and Western Australia and Victoria. Um, so he's lost an ally, I think, in the national cabinet. Someone who's um, you know more sort of open to relaxing uh, restrictions and. Um, um, getting you know the kind the, the, the state opened up again as fast as possible getting kids back to school getting getting businesses up and running again so he's lost an ally there and New okay. South Wales is going to be very challenging I think for the for the coalition but at the end of the day um, I think the the voters come the federal election will will, will judge the government on its record um, and on and on Labor on its um, on its plans and on its policies and also the two leaders I think you know, leadership has always been important, um, particularly in federal elections. Um, and given this pandemic, I think that's um, going to be even even more so. Um, v- voters will be looking very clearly at Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese and making an almost presidential choice, I think, when it comes to the next election. And Lucy, what do
0: you think? Do you think that if, say, for example, Perrottet stumbles uh, uh, along the way of taking New South Wales out of lockdown, that that will have a federal impact?
1: Look. Uh, as we know, New South Wales is the biggest state. Um, I think this has been the line of, of, of the new Perrottet government, which is that if New South Wales does well, the rest of Australia does well. So ergo, <laughs> in, in the reverse, the same could be true. I think, um, you know, the two have obviously had a, a prickly relationship at times, but constructive. Um, I think the way that Perrottet described it this week was to say that his meetings and dealings with with um, Scott Morrison and within the National Cabinet it's not a kumbaya session he's there (laughs) to fight for New South Wales but also um but also you know work constructively so I think New South Wales success under this new uh, Perrottet government is going to be critical for Scott Morrison but I think also at the end of the day um people are going to be when Come, when it comes to the federal election, I think people are going to be thinking about vaccine rollouts and vaccine supply and the way the federal government handled that. And I think people understand that that was sort of that was a federal issue as opposed to something handled by the state government. And I think that anger maybe that remains around the rollout and how things were handled Um in, in, in that regard, will will play a big role for people when, when it comes to the ballot box.
0: Okay. And on that note, I'll let you both go. I thank you both for a fantastic discussion. It was super interesting. Um, and I hope we can uh, get you back on the program again soon. Thanks, Thanks so much, much Monica. Monica. And on that note, I'd like to thank Lucy Cormack and Troy Bramston for being on Fourth Estate, And thank you for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, thanks to the foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk media and politics and everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Monica Attard, and thank you for listening.